The following audio is from Living Acts Church in Tyler, Texas. For more information about the church, you can visit our website, www.livingactschurch.com, or you can find us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash Living Acts Church. If you want to take your Bibles this morning and turn to Luke chapter 3 and verse 21, we're going to be reading the uh, actually part of chapter 4 in just a little bit uh, together as a congregation. And uh, I do want to remind you uh, to keep praying for one and for people in the congregation. There's a lot of sickness going on. I'm still fighting my little sickness. And uh, I know it doesn't go away very quickly. And uh, so some of the younger kids are getting some things and all that kind of stuff. And it just goes through our congregation with all of our little kids. So keep praying for people because that's a difficult time. Not so difficult for me because I'm old and I don't have kids anymore at home. Uh, just my wife, and she takes care of me, so I'm, I'm good. But it's, it is a difficult thing, I know, when you have little kids. I remember those days a lot. And it's, it's tough. It really is a tough time. So remember, if you don't see somebody here this morning who's usually here, pray for them because they're probably not here because of that very reason. Well, this morning, um, we're going to be looking at our next portion of the book of Luke, the story of reality. And today I'm going to begin with a statement that any follower of Jesus Christ can attest to. And that is simply this, temptation is real. And I know that's like a duh statement, but it is a real thing. Temptation is real. Every one of us who strive to follow the one who gave his life for us and arose from the dead to ever defeat death understands that temptation is real and it's inevitable. It will happen. You will be tempted and you will be solicited to do evil, which is really the de- definition of temptation. It, it is the solicitation to do evil. And I want to say a couple things about temptation, though, quickly this morning. First of all, temptation is not sin. And I think sometimes we get that mixed up. For if it were sin, Jesus would be the chief of sinners, of course, because he, he was tempted as we are, and he wouldn't be the sinless son of God. And so Hebrews tells us that who in every respect was tempted as we are, yet without sin. And so today what we're going to see is that Jesus was tempted with real temptations. And just because one is tempted does not mean that he must sin. And we've all been te- uh, tempted. We've all been solicited to do evil. But we don't have to give in to the temptation, nor do we always give in to that temptation. Yet there's no doubt that we have been tempted. I don't know if you remember, but in the book of James in particular, we're reminded about trials. Count it all joy, it says, when you fall into various trials, knowing that the trying of your faith produces patience. And, and what we learn from that first chapter, though, it goes on down and it tells us that trials often lead to temptation. So as we go through these trials in life, uh, tough times in our life, <coughs> excuse me, our tendency is to look for ways out of those trials and not learning the lessons that God has for us to learn. So we often seek ways out and we're tempted then to do evil, to get out of those trials in our life just a little bit earlier than we ought to. For instance, how many people have in the midst of financial trials done illegal things because they figure it's the only way out? Trial, temptation to do evil. How many people in the midst of relationship issues and and trials in marriage think, well, if I just have a relationship outside of my marriage, that's going to solve the problem. 
How many people amid problems with their employers in particular are tempted to undermine those in authority over them by gossiping maybe about their bosses, saying bad things about them, hoping to somehow cause problems with them? Well, the point of James is clear, and that is in his real life, trials often bring temptations as a way of solving the problems of our life. Now, this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to look at what I'm calling the showdown in the wilderness. How about that for a title? took me a long time for that one. The showdown in the wilderness. And it was truly a, a showdown. It was Jesus versus Satan. Mano a mano. Is that how you say that? One on one. And Satan's intention was to make Christ's sin, to make Christ's sin, to stop God's plan for the redemption of his elect by disqualifying the Savior. You know, a sinful Savior could save no one, thought, thought Satan. You know, if we could just, if I just get him to sin, there's, can't be the savior of the world. And then God's purpose in leading his son to, into this wilderness was to prove his son to be sinless and thus a true savior. And who's going to win this battle? That's the question. Hadn't some type of battle like this you know, been fought before, perhaps on a different scale? I mean, think about the first Adam. You remember the story of Adam and Eve in the garden? Did he not fail? after Satan tempted he and his wife to do evil. And what about Israel in the desert for 40 years? Hadn't that chosen nation of God failed also? So we've had so many failures and throughout scripture and no victories for the son of God's side, so to speak, until now. This was a different showdown. This was gonna be different as we will see. And today we're going to be encouraged by our savior. We're going to see that yes, temptation is real and it's inevitable, but victory is possible. And I, and I hope that more than anything else, we understand that because I think sometimes as Christians, we think it's inevitable that we sin. Now we're never gonna live sinlessly in this life. So that, that hope is gone, I'm sorry. Okay, that's true. But we do have, as we're going to see in the power of the Holy Spirit, the ability to fight this temptation and to defeat temptation in our life. So my prayer today is that we will see that, again, that you do not have to succumb to temptation. You can fight temptation and have victory in Christ. And you know, I, I need to tell you this too. I would never tell you that you're going to win this temptation with your own internal fortitude of some sort, your, your own mental toughness. I read this book recently on grit, you know, and the, your own grit, that's what's going to do it. You know, if, if I ever taught you such things, guess what? I'm a fool. I'll just tell you that right out. Our only hope in obtaining victory is through Christ alone. And that is the answer to every problem, to every trial, every temptation. And it's simple. It's Jesus. It's, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. So with that kind of introduction, understanding where we're heading here is, we're going to look at the passage in just a minute. Will you stand with me in the honor of reading God's word this morning? Uh, we're going to read uh, Luke chapter 4 and verses 1 through 15, uh, 13 this morning of this passage. <clears throat> and Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you're the son of God, command this stone to become bread. 
And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory for it's been delivered to me and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here for it's written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you and on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord, your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Now, as we look at this section of Luke's gospel, which you can entitle if you're trying to kind of outline where we're going, this, this is the portion where we're talking about the preparation for the ministry of Jesus. And we're, and we're going to see in verses 321 to 413 today how Jesus was prepared to begin his earthly ministry, which will lead ultimately to the purpose for which he came to earth to do his father's will. And in Luke 18, I want to read this portion quickly in, in verse 31, kind of tells us the purpose. And by the way, this is the third time that he said this to his disciples and they still don't get it. But listen to what is said concerning what is his purpose or the will of God for him. In verse 31 of chapter 18, it says, and taking the 12, he said to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem and everything that's written about the son of man by the prophets will be accomplished for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles. This is what the prophets wrote and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. Now listen to his disciples though, but they understood none of these things. He says it to them very plainly, but they still don't get it. He says, I'm going to die and I'm going to rise from the dead. And it says this saying was hidden from them and they did not grasp what was said. So that was the will of God. That was what Jesus was to do. And for Jesus to be prepared to begin his earthly ministry to lead to that and for him to have that victory in this showdown in this, with, the, with the devil, we, we have to first understand some things. And the first thing I want us to see as we begin this is just to look at the preparation and the credentials for the showdown. So I want us to just look at this very quickly, but two quick things I want us to see. We mentioned some of this last week when we looked at this passage, but I want us to first look just at the baptism of Jesus skin. So if you have your Bibles, turn them to verse 21 and 22, chapter three. It says this, that when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, and by the way, you're gonna see throughout the book of Luke, Luke always emphasizes prayer. And uh, the other gospels, emphasize it, but not to the extent that Luke does. And Jesus was praying as he was being baptized. The heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice from heaven came from, or a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. And, and here we see him, Jesus, as Matthew 3.15 has told us, we looked at last week. It is fitting, it says, that he's fulfilling all righteousness. And that is this baptism, he is identifying with the message of John. 
that of repentance. And even though he had no need to repent because he's identifying with the sinners that he came to save, namely us. And so this immersion in baptism would later picture what Christ did for us. And of course, it's a picture of his death, burial, and resurrection. And it's a picture of redemption for us. And so the scripture says that as he came out of this water, the text tells us that the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And then the father from heaven spoke and said, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And here what we see is his identification with the Trinity. God is three persons. Each person's fully God, but there is one God. That is the mystery of the Trinity. And in preparation for the showdown with Satan and for the beginning of his ministry, his baptism is evident of who he is. That is God the Son. But secondly, and I want you to notice this quickly again, Luke goes immediately to the genealogy of Jesus. He goes, the baptism, and then a second preparation is this genealogy. Now, genealogies can be great fun. Wouldn't you all agree? <laughs> but I have decided, to your benefit, not to preach a whole sermon on this genealogy, mainly because I can't pronounce the words. But, so I'm simply gonna give you Right now, the main purpose of this genealogy of Jesus, and it actually is fascinating when you look into the genealogies of what exactly is going on in all those. But what I want you to see simply is that in this genealogy, we see Jesus's credentials. In other words, that he is able to be the Messiah because of, the, of his lineage as the Old Testament promised that the, message, uh, that the message would come from the lines that this genealogy tells us. So a few things that we learned from it, very simply, it proved first that Jesus was from a Jewish line. And just as he had been promised the great prophet or the Messiah would come from the Jewish line in Deuteronomy 18, 15, we find out, well, Jesus is from a Jewish line. Jesus was also from a priestly line. And the entire priestly line from the Old Testament prefigured the coming savior as that great high priest that we learned all about when we looked at the book of Hebrews. And in this genealogy, Luke proves that Jesus comes from the line also of David's throne. And so he could be and is the Messiah as fulfilled through Mary's lineage here. Now, there's much more to the genealogy. I went through it very quickly, but I'm simply summarizing it for this purpose. It gives Jesus his credentials, so to speak. No one in the Jewish faith can say that Jesus is not from the proper lineage to be the Messiah, the savior of the world. So with that kind of preparation and those credentials in mind, I want us to begin now looking at really the main part of what we're looking at today, the showdown, the great showdown in the wilderness. And so let us first look at the, sh as the showdown begins in verses four or in chapter four, verses one through 13. Now I am not going to begin by, by, saying, standing in this corner at 150 pounds of solid muscle out of Nazareth via Bethlehem, Jesus, as tempted as I am to, to do that. I'm not gonna do that. I'm gonna refrain from that. But I do want us to look at a couple things about the participants. Look with me at verse one of chapter four, and we'll see a couple things here. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, he returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. 
So let me notice, let's notice a couple things about Jesus, first of all. Number one, it says that he was full of the Holy Spirit. And we're gonna see this throughout the book of Luke, that Jesus constantly relied upon the Holy Spirit. And that seems so odd to us. I mean, Jesus, God the Son, why is he relying on God the Holy Spirit? Well, because of his humanity. Remember, he's 100% God and 100% man. And so he relied upon the Holy Spirit continually. John chapter three and verse 34 tells us this. For he whom God has sent, Jesus, utters the words of God. Why? For he gives the Spirit without measure. So the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, was given to Jesus without measure. And without measure meaning fully, as much as possible. If you remember in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit rested on prophets in measure, so to speak, meaning for the moment, for a time, for a, for a particular uh, something to go on, something specific for the times, in other words, designed by God. But this Jesus always had the fullness of the Spirit, constantly had the fullness of the Spirit. And by the way, just for fun, there is a book entitled Knowing Christ by Mark Jones that I highly recommend that everyone in this world actually read on the subject of, it's kind of modeled after Knowing God by J.I. Packer. Excellent book, and he does a whole chapter on this whole idea of Jesus being filled with the Spirit and relying upon the Spirit. It's an amazing pass or chapter that speaks to all the things in the Bible that speaks to this very topic. So that's the first thing. He's full of the Holy Spirit. But notice that he is led by the Spirit. And this goes along with him being filled with the Spirit. Uh, but we do need to see that this showdown was orchestrated by God. The Spirit led him into the wilderness. This wasn't, he just went, went out one day, but the spirit led him in the wilderness. And notice also that he fasted for 40 days. And that's significant because that would make him very hungry, uh, drinking most likely only water, that's it, and not eating any food. And then the text indicates, we've read, that he was tempted or harassed by Satan for 40 days. Now, we see the three major, we're gonna look at the three major temptations, but the text seems to indicate that it was 40 days in the wilderness that he was harassed or tempted by Satan. So, our first participant in the great showdown, he's full of the Holy Spirit, he is led by the Spirit, he has fasted for 40 days, and he's tempted and harassed constantly by his opponent. Now, let's look at the second participant, and that is Satan. He seemingly had it all, at least he, he thinks he does, and at least he thinks that way. Uh, by all the, when we look at the offers and the temptations, he, he thinks he has all this power and authority, and he really doesn't. He's a big blowhard, just to be honest with you. He is very persistent in his tempting. We see this throughout the passage. He never gives up. And, and then I want you to know something, too, about Satan that's very important, something that we forget sometimes, and that is that Satan is a created being. He is not a god. There is no dualism going on there. This is no Star Wars. This isn't the good force and the bad force going against each other. And, you know, in Star Wars, sometimes the last movie, the good force wins, right? Next one, who knows, right? Because they're, these, they're this dualistic kind of thing. That is not, we don't look that way at Satan and Jesus, God created this angelic being, Lucifer, who fell, right? So he is a, he in fact is a created being. He's a fallen angel, though very powerful, though very cunning, and he will do anything to destroy Christ and those that follow Christ. He is not a God of, of sorts. 
And something too that's very important, uh, Satan cannot be in more than one place at one time. He's not omnipresent. Sometimes we think that, you know, Satan's here, here, and here. Yes, there are fallen demons. A third we, we see in scripture of all the angels fell and they, are, they work for him. So it's as if he's everywhere, so to speak, but he is not capable of being omnipresent. And in this passage, he has admitted that Jesus is the son of God. And so those are our two contestants in this showdown in the wilderness. So now let's notice the battle itself. Let's look at the battle of temptation. And this is the core of the showdowns. And these temptations here, really, when you start looking at temptations, they're a matter of what you will believe. When you think about all temptations that we encounter, they seem to come down to simply this. And this is really kind of the, when when you're tempted, it comes down to this. Who will you believe? Who will you trust? Who will you obey or who will you follow? Will you you follow Satan in his demonic worldview or Jesus in his gospel? And that's really the the bottom line of all temptation. Every temptation, again, boils down to who you believe, who you trust, who you obey, and who you follow. So now let's look at this first temptation that Satan places before our Savior. And by the way, often places before us. And he begins by tempting Jesus to believe this. Number one, that God doesn't care for you. That's really what he's tempting Jesus with. God doesn't really care for you. Your father, your heavenly father, he doesn't care for you. Look at verse two, (coughs) chapter four. For 40 days being tempted by the devil and he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. And so the devil said to him, to Jesus, if you're the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Now, Jesus had not eaten for 40 days, and the text tells us that he was hungry. And Satan's temptation is for Jesus to use his own power for his own purpose, that is, to satisfy his flesh. But behind this is a subtle but strong hint that his father does not care for him. I mean, would not a loving father give food to his son if he had the means to do so and his son was hungry? I would, right? My son was hungry and I had the means to do so, I would do it. Did did not God give manna, for instance, and other food to his chosen people in the wilderness and he sent bread from heaven to them and he cared for them, but, but does he care for you, Jesus? Will he provide for you? Why can't you, Jesus, Satan says, being the son of God, use your power to to eat and turn the stone into bread? A a true father, he he says, will give you food. Use your own power to get what you want. Now, think about this. This is the same trick that he pulled on Eve. It's the exact same thing. Why can't you eat of that one tree, Eve? If your father really loved you, you could eat of any tree in the garden. He'd share it with all, with, you know, it all with you. But thanks be to God, Jesus rejected Satan's temptation and he does what we will see and he uses what we will see three times. He uses God's word, the scriptures to help defeat tempta- this temptation. And we know this because here it's illustrated again for us uh, uh, that there, that there is power in the word of God. 
It, it doesn't return void. It, it will accomplish everything it's designed to do. The word of God is, is a weapon of our warfare and it's necessary to be used by us in defeating Satan and the temptations that sometimes so easily ensnare us. You'll notice it says in this passage, it is written. Jesus keeps saying that, it is written. Well, what does he mean by that? Well, it's, it's a phrase that means that what has been written in scripture remains written. What has been written in the past has abiding value. So listen up, Satan. It is written. What has been written in the past, it has abiding value. You need to listen to this because it is the very word of God. And notice now that, that Jesus then quotes Deuteronomy 8.3, but I want you to notice his emphasis here. He begins with, he says, man does not live by bread alone. Now he's, he's showing us that as the son of man, another the name he most loved for himself, he must humble himself to the will of God. And the will of God at this point was not to feed him, but for him to rely upon the Holy Spirit and the Father. And so Jesus tells us in John 5.30, again, he says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And as a man, he needed food, but he trusted the Father to provide for him, just as Israel was to rely upon God for their food in the wilderness. He would not fall to the temptation to use his own power to disobey his Father. And why? Well, because he knew the rest of Deuteronomy 8.3. Man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Yes, physical substance is necessary. We all know that. If we don't have it, we, we can't live, but we don't live by it alone. The, the word is the food for the inner man and is as necessary as physical food. And Satan was trying to tell Jesus that if his father really cared for him, if he really wanted to provide for him, he wouldn't let him be hungry. But Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit, won this part of the showdown by believing, trusting, following, and obeying the word of God. So let me implore you, please never fall for this lie, the temptation that God does not care for you. And that, we, we fall for that more than we think. We wonder, God, why do you allow this to happen in my life, right? Do I don't, I don't deserve, suddenly we ask, I don't really deserve this, okay? We think that way but he has demonstrated so clearly to us in the sending of his son for us that he loves us. The word is clear. And it's so clear in, in this verse that we all love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Simple as that, isn't it? God does care for us. Here's the second temptation. Number two, Satan is able to give you everything without suffering. That was the second thing that he tempted Jesus with. Verse five, and the devil took him up, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory for it's been delivered to me and give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Now, I've said this earlier, Satan is a big blowhard. That's all he is. He thinks much too highly of himself. John 8, 44 tells us 
primarily that, G, that Satan is a murderer from the beginning. He has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. He did not have the authority or power to give Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and the authority and their glory. Only God himself has that power. Yes, it is true that we read in Ephesians that, that he is the prince of the power of the air, that he does have power that others do not have. That is very true. And that's why we respect that in one sense. But just as the book of Job instructs us, he can do absolutely nothing that the father does not ultimately allow. But you see, this is his ploy to tempt us to believe that he can deliver the goods for us. He can, he can make us famous. He can and have authority and, and he can help us to enjoy the good life. Now, normally you and I are not confronted by Satan himself in these areas directly. Satan doesn't say to us, hey, um, this is Satan. Just want to talk to you. And, and I want you to do this or that. But, but the subtlety of the world and the demonic worldview hastens us to believe the lives of Satan disguised as good. And ultimately, that leads us to worship Satan in a sense. Satan clearly says to Jesus, if you then will worship me, it will all be yours. But notice this, if Jesus falls to this temptation, and here's the key part, he will bypass the one thing that the father sent him to do. And what was that? To suffer and pay for the sins of those who would believe in him. No cross, no suffering brings no salvation. And so Satan's ploy was to get Jesus to worship him and have some type of alternative messiahship that didn't include the shedding of his blood for the remission of sin. And you and I, one way or another, are faced with a similar temptation at some point of our life when confronted with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We, we can either accept the gospel of Jesus Christ or we accept the crossless, sufferless, satanic doctrine that says, follow, obey, trust, believe in Satan and his salvation, which is really is the salvation seemingly of works. So we have to choose. Do we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead and thus we will be saved? Because it's with the heart that one believes and is justified and with the mouth that one confesses and is saved. Or do we believe the lie of Satan? First, that he has power at all to give us all the kingdoms of the world and authority and their glory. And secondly, that we are to worship him. But Jesus responds with the word again. You notice what he says. It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. So very simply put, don't let Satan dupe you into believing that he has the power to give you this world. And he's, again, he's not gonna come up to you most likely and go, hi, I'm Satan, here it is. It's gonna come through a false worldviews, false doctrine, false ideas of who God is. For ultimately, that which seems so inviting to us will be destroyed and you with it. Now, thirdly, the third showdown we see in this temptation. Number three, Satan comes to him and says, basically, you can force God to protect you. That's the third thing. Look at verse nine. And he took him to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and he said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it's written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest, you're, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, 
you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So what does Satan do? He takes Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple. And most think that this was the southeast corner of the temple. And it looked over the Kidron Valley. And it was like 300 maybe to 400 feet high up in the air. So he could see this whole valley. And he told him, basically, here's what you should do. Jump off the building and enforce God to protect you, to catch you. It would be like us going to downtown Dallas skyscraper and getting on top of it and jumping off and expecting God to save us, okay? And you're gonna do that, of course, by faith, right? No, you're just stupid. So that's just the way it is. You know, you jump off that building and say, oh, God, you will save me. There is no reason for it, simply to see if God cared somehow. And this was really to tempt God. Now, Satan already defeated twice by the word of God in the first two temptations, decides to be clever and use the word in order to tempt Jesus to do evil. So he misquotes Psalm 91 verses 11 and 12, and he leaves out a a portion of the scripture in order to tempt him. And the idea was, again, if Jesus jumped from this height and was unharmed, this would somehow enhance Jesus' unique dependence upon God as he falls seemingly into the loving arms of God the Father. God would never let him experience pain, right? And Satan made it look like it was such a great idea. But think again, this would bypass the plan that was given before the foundation of the world for the Savior to take upon himself the sin of those who would believe and to absorb the wrath of the Father in payment for our sin. And it would bypass the resurrection of Jesus from the dead meaning no forgiveness, no justification for us, no right relationship with God the Father. Again, a crossless salvation, which, which is no salvation at all. I mean, it, it seems so spiritual. What a better thing to do than to prove the Father's love. But Jesus rebukes Satan by quoting Deuteronomy 6.16, you shall not put your Lord your God to the test. Jesus was not going to have the Father do a flashy miracle for some type of selfish purpose. A man named Stein reminds us, he says that true worship does not seek to dictate to God how he must fulfill his covenantal promises. Now, what we've seen in this showdown in the wilderness is this. Three attempts to defeat the Son of God. Three failures by Satan. Three victories by our Lord Jesus Christ. Finally, someone who can and does defeat Satan's temptations. The first Adam could not. He failed in the garden. The people of Israel could not. They failed in the wilderness. But the Son of God, God the Son, the Son of Man, the Messiah, wins the showdown in the wilderness. Now, with that said, and I'm quickly, I want to end with this. What do we learn from this showdown? I'm gonna give you five real quick things. What what do we need, in other words, to have victory over temptation? What do we learn in this showdown? Well, number one is this, spend time with God, okay? Jesus was spending, the reason he was spending time in the wilderness was not simply to be tempted, but he wanted to be with God. Here and other places in scripture, we see Jesus getting away to be alone with God. Throughout the book of Luke and the gospels, every once in a while, right in the midst of the busiest time of ministry, do you know what Jesus does? He goes out into the wilderness by himself. He says, I gotta go away. I gotta go pray. So you and I, 
Understand, we need time alone with God. One of the greatest things you can do is spend a couple hours away from your family and everybody else in the midst of nowhere, maybe a garage, somewhere, and just spend time with him. And I would encourage you, one spouse or the other, help each other if you have a spouse. Let them go away for a couple hours. You go away for a couple hours so that they can be alone with God, okay? But be warned about something, and this is the strange thing. By being alone with God, it can be great and wonderful, but Satan will tempt you there. Isn't that what happened with Jesus? And if you've ever done this, you know there's distractions like crazy all the time. Things come in your head, and it sometimes takes you an hour, an hour and a half just to get settled before you can even begin time alone with God. So that's the first thing, spend time with God. Secondly, recognize you will be tempted. Oftentimes, after the greatest spiritual victories, we are tempted to do evil. Think about, again, Elijah on Mount Carmel. You remember that story? And and all the 350 prophets of of Baal, he wipes them out. Well, God wipes them out. But, you know, he, he is about... He just teases them. He pours water on the sacrifice and he says, God, I want you to to just zap this sacrifice. And God does. And he wins this great spiritual victory. But then Queen Jezebel says, I'm going to kill you. So he runs and he runs and literally he runs a marathon. And he ends up under a tree. And do you remember what he said? I want to kill myself. First he says, he became all self-righteous. I'm the only righteous man in Israel. And then he says, I want to kill myself. He was spiritually depleted, physically depleted. So understand that even when you have your greatest spiritual victories, there's gonna be time of great temptation. And what does God do? God feeds him, makes him sleep, and then gives him orders to do other things. But thirdly, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Daily, we must yield to the Spirit and be filled with the Spirit. Keep being filled with the Holy Spirit. If you walk in the Spirit, Galatians says, you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. Being filled with the Spirit doesn't keep you from temptations, but you will not yield to temptations. To be filled, we are commanded to be constantly filled with the Spirit, yielding to the Spirit, pushing away things that keep us from the things of God. Fourthly, your weapon is the Word of God. In other words, we mentioned this already, but are you armed with the word of God? You you must know and hide God's word in your heart. You must memorize it and meditate upon it like a cow chews his cud. That's what meditation is. He chews his cud. It goes down to one of his four stomachs. It comes back up. He keeps going back and forth with it. Lovely picture. That is exactly what meditation on the word of God is. In Ephesians, it's an offensive weapon in the armor of God. It's given to us to defend against the schemes of the devil. And then fifthly, just a reminder, attacks will continue. Look at verse 13 quickly. And when the devil had, he ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. So you see, Satan leaves, but he's not done with Jesus. And this is why we do A through D because they are the weaponry that God gives us to defeat temptations. The bad news is that temptations will continue. The good news is that through the gospel of Jesus Christ, we may have victory over them. So let me close with this. As we uh, approach the Lord's Supper today, we, we have in picture and material form, so to speak, our greatest weapon against temptation. The life death, 
burial and resurrection of Jesus. In other words, what? The gospel. And it's gonna be presented this morning as we come to partake in it. And as we preach the gospel to ourselves every day, the temptations of this world will grow dimmer and dimmer to us. And the beauty of our Savior will bring victory and joy to our lives. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for this wonderful story of this showdown. God, it is a beautiful thing to see that our Savior is perfect and sinless and shows us how to fight temptation for the glory of his name. Father, thank you that Jesus did not sin so that the cross could happen and so that we can be saved by the blood of Jesus. And we thank you, God, in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening. For more information on Living Acts Church, please visit our website, www.livingactschurch.com, or you can find us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash Church.